The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value, and so can you. Welcome to the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you are looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper and welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America. A a real pleasure to be talking with you again and um, I've got a really exciting show today with a fabulous guest, Bob Coolham. I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, getting to Yes and the Art of Business Improv, uh, and I've been loving reading Bob's book. But before I introduce you to Bob, I would like to say a big thank you to my guest last week. I had Simon Hampel on the show. Simon was talking about future stewards and um, really uh, enjoyed uh, that conversation with Simon. And I think it's really important as leaders that we do think about our role in the world and we do think about you know going forward how in our roles we can contribute to some of the big issues that are going on around the globe and one of the statements that really stuck out it was a quote actually that Simon shared with me it was by Viktor Frankl and he said that between stimulus and response there is a space and in that space is our power to choose our response in, and in that response is our growth and our freedom. And I was thinking about that this week when I read, was reading um, my guest today's book. Now, amidst the deluge of advice from business people, um, my guest says that there's an overlooked tool, a key to thriving in today's fast-paced, unpredictable environment, and that's improvisation. And being able to improvise in those moments between stimulus and response and doing it really well as a proper thought-out process um, it sounds uh, really kind of helpful. Now, Bob Colhan is the founder. He's president and CEO of Business Improv, a world-class leader in creating experiential training and development programs for all sorts of corporations. He's an adjunct professor at the Duke University um, Fuqua School of Business in Columbia Business School at Columbia University. And he teaches regularly as part of the executive programs at the Ukla Anderson School of Management. He's passionate about cooking, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's a family man. He's, he loves the Chicago Cubs, and he now lives in the, the suburbs or the burbs, as he describes it, of New York. So let's talk today about um, improv and how it relates, because Bob draws on some of the principles from cognitive and social psychology and behavioral economics and things like that, so we can really think on our feet uh, when these challenges uh, come to us. So a huge welcome to Bob Colham. Thank you very much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to talk with you. You're very welcome. Lovely to uh, chat with you today. And I know you've done literally lots and lots of improv, but I, I wonder in your life, where did this passion for improv come from? Where did it start? It started, I think, back in high school. When I was about a, a freshman or sophomore in high school, I had the opportunity to um, 
to do something unique in the talent shows. So we'd have these talent shows where, where the, the pom-pom squad would jump up and perform and the teachers would do their teacher band and the, the regular band would come out. And in between each one of these sets, the curtains would fall and there's just be blank stage. And so my sophomore year, I took advantage of this opportunity, went up to the director of the, the talent show and said, can I fill up that stage, just that blank time? And so I went up there with a couple of friends and we didn't have a, a script. We, our goal was pretty much just to make people laugh and do whatever it took to make people laugh. And we perhaps had some loose premises at times. For the most part, though, we were just riffing with the audience and we just called it making things up and that turned out to be improv. And then I had the opportunity to study with literally the people who created this art form in its current incarnation out of Chicago, and I was hooked. Uh, well, I mean, you, you kind of jumped there into when you were at uh, sort of college, but you know, was there a time when you were maybe, I don't know, three or four years old or five, and you started suddenly improvising in front of family or friends, and, uh, and you got lots of laughs and responses that you thought this was cool, or did it really just come to you in the spur of the moment at that well, stage? In the late 80s, early 90s, improvisation really was not popular. It's not nearly as prevalent as it is now. So no one really knew that word improv as it relates to an entertainment piece. That said, I certainly was that kid in class who would take advantage of unexpected opportunities and moments in the class and really just blow them up, which is the spirit of improvisation. And I wouldn't come in, I, I go to a Billy Crystal quote, which is the difference between a class clown and a class comedian. That class clown is pretty two-dimensional. It's the red nose, it's the red hair and buffoonery that doesn't go beyond the surface. And a class comedian is someone who pretty much studies the art of comedy as it exists in any situation. And that's what I was as it related to spontaneity, which is almost by definition, improvisational comedy. So you, so at that stage you were starting to study this um, and, and working out the best way to do it because you saw maybe there was a process to it? Well, intuitively I was studying it. I, I would study movies and why I liked um, what Steve Martin did or Chevy Chase did in Fletch or The Jerk in, in reverse order there for the movies, um, the Naked Gun series. I'd really watch heightening and, and deconstruct comedy to the very best of my ability on my own. I didn't start learning improvisation, though, until right after my freshman year in university when I left Illinois State University at, at in central Illinois and went up to Chicago and slept on my cousin's floor for a very hot, humid summer and learned from Martin DeMott, who created the Second City Training Center. And that understanding of the framework that you were talking about really put me in the position to embody improvisation. And once it really was my second or third class when I realized this was this was what I was born to do. This is my blood. This is my skin. This is the most interesting, exciting and easiest thing for me to take on. And I don't mean easy as in it's not challenging in any capacity. It's incredibly challenging. I mean, the decision to, for example, leave the business world uh, as a young man who was very successful in business and study improvisation full time when I finally had that opportunity now about five years later after my 19th year uh, in, of life and studying improv over the summer. That was a 
blink of an eye transition for me. It wasn't a hard change to go from something that was comfortable and I was successful and, and financially stable to being the opposite of all of those things to study improv. And what did your family think of that? You know, had they you know, helped help support you through college and things like that? And then, uh, and then, um, you know, what's Bob doing? He's going off doing this improv thing. And uh, how did they feel about that? Was it, was it, was it easy? Were you supported? No, no, no. They, they, they thought it was crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I just spent uh, four and a half years and several summers uh, getting a business degree. I was very successful as a young businessman, even won some pretty prestigious uh, regional Bank of America awards for creative marketing in Chicago. So the regional markets was significant. And um, was being headhunted at the age of 24 for six-figure salaries. And I dropped out of all of that to become a professional improviser, which at that time was a complete oxymoron. There was no such thing as professional improv in the mid-90s. It didn't have, this was before Whose Line Is It Anyway, for example. So there was no base for making money in improv. And to, to say that they discouraged me would be polite. <laughs> <laughs> What I did, though, and it was not intentional, and this is truly, when I look back at it, the spirit of improvisation as it links to business, when talking to my parents, I shifted in midstream and negotiated with them and said, it took me four and a half years to go through university and get a degree and get a solid job. Give me four years to study improvisation and see if I can make it work. So half a year less excluding summer schools, of course, because now improv is a 365-day passion of mine. If I can't figure out how to make it work in four years, then I can always go back to business. And they agreed to that. And that was not something that I, I strategized on and went in with a game plan. That was something that at my parents' kitchen, kitchen table in Effingham, Illinois, when talking with them, I shifted to find some common ground and common understanding and a base plate from which we can both work. Excellent. I'm uh, just, just my mind suddenly cast back to uh, finding myself one evening at a Peter Frampton concert outside in Rockford, Illinois, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm passing through on the way to Chicago. Um, but you, so you, um, so you, you know, you spent literally thousands of hours doing comedic improv, and you were telling me you were, you know, working at uh, at the home of the Chicago. Um, Cubs. Um, well, before the interview started, mm-hmm. what did you, you know, what did you learn while you were doing that, and how did that then transition into this, you know, bridging piece between you know, improv and business? I think that in order to answer that question, it would be good to really understand that I got an undergrad in business from the University of Illinois at Chicago. So I had a base in business already and was successful, as mentioned, in the business world. So I had some real world experience, in fact, a a fair amount of it considering my age before my mid-20s. And then when I left the business world, my goal was to study the art of improvisation as passionately as and fully as possible. And I was I was doing that. I was learning from the very best people, people who literally created the art of improvisation before they died or before they moved on to create shows like 30 Rock or Parks and Rec. I was working with elite talent and the goal at that time actually was not to get back into business. To point in a 
the half a decade or so that I was really immersed in the art of improvisation, I did everything in my power not to get back into business. I was broke. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was scrambling, working any odd jobs that would pay me cash in hand so that I could pay my mortgage. I bought a condo as a young man in Chicago, directly east of Wrigley Field. Um, and so I was taking any odd jobs. I was a nanny. I hauled sheetrock. I painted houses. I I did everything in my power not to get back into business until finally, uh, on the verge multiple times of losing my condo, I came to the realization that I was not performing at the top of my intelligence, and I knew how I could link this back to another passion of mine, which was business, and show people exactly how the tenets of improvisation, when redirected properly, hit the nail right on the head as far as strengthening a skill set related to communication or creativity and innovation, teamwork, leadership, adaptive problem solving, crisis management. And while all of this realization was taking place, a true serendipitous moment happened in that I had the opportunity to collaborate with a Duke University Fuqua School of Business professor to create the first improv program in any business school in the entire world. So all of these points were coming to a head at the same exact time. And in the spirit of serendipity as it relates to improvisation, serendipity doesn't really exist beyond coincidence if you don't take advantage of it. And the taking advantage of it could be an accident or it could be purposeful like it was in my case. And that's also the root of improvisation, that awareness that something, an opportunity is right in front of me. What am I going to do with it and how can I succeed from it? And mm-hmm. so from there, the path was really getting set in linking improv to business through, by the way, behavioral psychology and cognitive psychology, social psychology, the behavioral sciences. That's the route from the up on your feet comedy experiential learning to how to apply it to real world business when we're not talking about comedy anymore. We're talking about leadership or adaptability, change management, etc. And where, you know, in, in business, how would you define business improv and why is it so important? The way that we define improv in my company, business improv, is on these three core concepts, reacting, adapting, and communicating. Reacting, adapting, communicating. If you're reacting, you are focused. You are present in real time just simply to react. If you're adapting, you're reacting within parameters or trying to achieve a specific outcome. And we are always communicating. There's always someone with whom we can communicate and something in our environment to which we can communicate. So whether you're talking about improvisation as applied to a comedic art form or applied to business or first responders, EMTs, firefighters, special forces, athletes, you know, whether it's international football that I know you love or baseball that I love or mixed martial arts or American football, whatever it is, it's really based in that being in the moment in real time, trying to achieve a specific outcome and communicating with your teammates. Um, and that applies, as I'm tiptoeing on there, it's not just business. It's in so many parts of life. We were, we were just, uh, and you'd have had that conversation about that incredible video with the gentleman being interviewed about North Korea when his children sort of spilled into the room and his yes. wife. <laughs> and uh, that was quite a good example where 
you know, improvisational skills could have been really handy. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I have so much empathy for that man who was not trained in improv and has gained a lot of success and popularity from it. So he's, he didn't suffer from that experience. At the same time, when you watch that video, you know, he's, he's bumping his kid out of the way so that he can have this very important interview with the BBC, as opposed to really just embracing the fact that his child came in and stormed the barn, perhaps make the child part of the interview and really just say that, well, this is a part of life that so many people have to deal with. Why ignore it and pretend like it's a mistake? Embrace it as if it's a natural occurrence and move on. Yeah. And the funny thing with that was he got his child and the younger one suddenly came in on, on wheels and then his wife came in. It was, uh, it was just comedy genius, wasn't it? Oh, Chris, uh, yeah, as you and I were talking about before the interview, that's a proper, if you want to properly study heightening as it relates to comedy, take a look at this video again, because this man's having a serious interview, the kid comes in in a very clownish way, you know, in one of those ridiculous three-year-old dances, comes in and the dad pushes the kid away as if to somehow um, get rid of the problem. Then all of a sudden, this little boy comes in in one of those walkie seats, bumping into the doors like a bumper car. And there's a solid beat before the wife comes in, just sliding and bangs into the bed, grabs the kids. And then there's another heightening of comedy that takes place as she's trying to get these two kids out the door, running over the oldest one who's not in the, the walking chair with the kid who's in the walk chair the kid in the walking chair gets stuck in the door and you hear punk, 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 just trying to get these but now like a pinball game the ball bouncing around get out the door it's a it's a wonderful example of comedy and really a great example of what happens in real life too that comedy begets life and life begets art yeah yeah so so get after the break we'll we'll talk about uh, some of the Let's talk about some of the things we've got to think about in these sort of scenarios and uh, how improv can help us in a number of different uh, situations um, and environments in the workplace uh, and outside. So we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. Do join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, it's Chris Cooper. I'm with Bob Colhan. We're talking about um, the art of business improv. And uh, Bob, um, I know we, when we talked about in our sort of introductory break and things, you you apply quite a lot of sort of scientific theory and uh, and technique to improv, and you're talking about cognitive things and what, what's the and social psychology, um, psychology, behavioural economics, that sort of thing. Why have you chosen to? Um, to really go into those sorts of fields and maybe you combine it—is it to legitimise it in some way, or what's the what, what's the what's the um, view? The purpose of really putting that behavioural psychology framing around why to use improvisation is really to help have it help it have more impact to the people who are going through the experiential learning programs. Because up on its feet, well, let's look at improv in a couple different ways. The most common way people uh, define improvisation is in regards to comedy. And because of that, it discredits really the skill set and training and experience and intelligence it takes to improvise correctly in the moment. And so there's a re-education that needs to take place. Then when you put people up on their feet in these very high energy experiential programs, which is what I specialize in, the common trait that humans have is to discredit what you're doing because they're having so much fun. If it's fun, it really can't be practical or useful, even though we'll prove to them over the course of the the workshop that we're going to hit very hard to reach um, goals and the return on investment is going to be very real. The journey has to be strengthened with an understanding of why and how we're doing it. So I went back now a decade and a half and focused on collaborating with many of what or who are now the world's top behavioral psychologists and cognitive psychologists and organizational theorists so that I have a better understanding of why we make decisions alone, why we make decisions and how we make decisions alone as an individual inside of a group. And then how the group makes decisions, which is what they specialize in. So I am really learning from the best teachers of this who are studying why and how people make decisions as individuals, how we make decisions as individuals in a group, and how the group makes decisions. And I take what they've done with their research and understanding, and I redirect it to now put a framing around the experiential learning that improvisation inherently provides so that those hard-to-reach goals are really hit head-on. Mm. Brilliant. Well, I want to sort of talk about now about improv and there was something I picked up in your book which I thought was very you know very interesting you know people often think about improv as something you kind of make up in the spur of the moment um but you talk about in your book about performing improv at the top of your intelligence 
Um, so I'm really interested just to explore that for a moment and you know, how you really learn to become good at it. So much of what we do when improvisation needs to take place gets cluttered and muddled by thinking too much. Now, I'm not going to suggest that we don't think. Rather, performing at the top of your intelligence is the ability to let your core decision-making come to the surface. Your gut decision-making, your core decision-making, your intuitive decision-making, your instinctual decision-making. Improv, 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 improv. And this does not dismiss your education. It doesn't dismiss your experience. It doesn't dismiss your perspective of unfolding situations in real time. It doesn't dismiss the collaborative elements, the, the perspective of other people after brought to the surface. Rather, then dismissing it, all of that, it takes advantage of all of this. It allows you to access parts of your brain, your education, your experience, your background, your collaborative elements, your adaptability to what's happening in real time so that ultimately the, the right decisions get made faster and you're able to make decisions that aren't quite correct correct in the long run because you're adapting along the, the line. And that's something that needs to be practiced. It needs to be strengthened. You have to train yourself in it. Some are intuitively good at improvisation, just like some are intuitively good at athletics, for example. However, you and I both like sport, and I'll pose this to you. Who's your favorite football team? Uh, Leicester City. Yeah, Leicester City. Do they practice? Um, I hope so. Yeah, do they draw so. plays? They, they do, yeah. They do, they do practice. Do they what, sorry? Yeah. Do they draw up plays? Draw up plays. Um, what, what do you mean? Yeah, do they, do they know what happens if you pass, uh, give and go, right? You pass it to one person, then run in front of a defender, and they pass it back to you right away? Yeah, sure. Do they study their competition? Yeah. Absolutely. So they put Absolutely. all this training in place, not only cognitively where they're, they're looking and researching and talking about it, they put real experience in place so that it becomes muscle memory. And this is super important. It's training through repetition so that when game time takes place, they're not thinking about the play that they're supposed to execute. They're not thinking about how to kick the ball or put some spin on the ball or where one of their teammates is going to be. They've rehearsed it. They've practiced it so many times that they know how to make that play and when things go wrong as they invariably will you know murphy's law is real across the board they are able to react and adapt and communicate at a more elite level than their competition and that's really what we're talking about when it comes to performing at the top of your intelligence it's how do you put all of these this skill set into place at a higher level than the people around you your competition and then how do you strengthen it in other people as well yeah. Yes. I said I hope Leicester City uh, tra train um, based on they had a blipping performance um, at the start of the season, but they seem to be um, get, got back on track. But I, what are you saying there? I think you know you started with regards to football, but myself, um, when I'm speaking, I know that if I practice and practice my my speech, then and I get so I really understand where I'm going with it, then then I can be an autopilot with that, and then I can just be in the room with the people and what's happening, as opposed to having to remember my lines. I think that's what you're also, you know, what you're suggesting uh, with uh, regards to using improv. A absolutely. I know engagement's a huge passion of yours and focus of yours. And what you're talking about as it relates to a presentation or a monologue is rehearsing it and practicing it so 
much that you embody it. And once you embody it, it becomes, you can let your authentic voice come out. And it's really at that time that your ability to improvise rises because you're not worried about the words. You're not worried about the content. You're not worried about the points you need to make. You know them inside and out. At this point, you're, they're part of your core DNA. So you should be able to take advantage of unexpected opportunities or challenges as other people will look at them in real time, framing your perspective of how do I use this as opposed to how do I avoid this. And in doing so, you're able to engage your audience at a different level. It's so much of that is it's really about being present and, and being comfortable in that moment. You know, improvisation thrives at that pivotal moment where strategy and planning meet execution. And that's what you're talking about with your presentations, that you, you plan it, you strategize, you learn it, and then once it's time to execute, actually give that presentation Anything can happen. Technology can break down. The the room could be volatile. People talking. Cell phones going off. An emergency could take place. It could just be that they're they were all out drinking the night before, and there <laughs> takes a little bit of time for them to warm up. You have to find different ways to engage to make sure that ultimately your message and your content is impactful for that audience. Excellent. So, how do we use improv in you know to kind of break through these barriers that we might have around things like creativity and collaboration in the workplace? So a major part of improvisation is based on the ability to postpone judgment. And this is pivotal. Now, postponing judgment is not abandoning judgment. That's very different. Postponing judgment is just pushing off judgment. Now, a lot of great people, especially when who are higher status inside their company, have the the initials after last name, the the better corner office, the sexier plane trips, whatever it might be that defines high status to you, they actually use critical thinking as a default because the higher up in the organization you get, the more you get paid to come up with the right decisions, i.e. be critical. Now, rather than falling into critical thinking as a default, what we need to do is sometimes take off the critical thinking hat and put the postponement of judgment hat on so that we can Postpone judgment of ourself as it relates to creativity, for example. So there's ways to postpone judgment. First, start with individual growth. And then that moves into team growth. And that moves into then creating culture. So interpersonal development to personal development to interpersonal development to team development to creating culture. And all of that's based in a postponement of judgment. The ability to say, for a period of time, I'm going to be open to hear what somebody else has to say. I'm going to be open into letting my own ideas come out of my head. I'm going to fail early, fail often, and draw a huge line between the divergent thinking side, which is the postponement of judgment side, the brainstorming, the creation, the number of ideas come out, versus the convergent thinking side, which is the critical thinking side. You clean up the number of ideas. This is where you judge. This is where you edit. This is where you fine-tune. And the growth then starts with personal development, then to one or two people around you, interpersonal development, to team development, to creating culture. And all of this postponement of judgment is rooted in yes and, which is the cornerstone of improv around the world. So, so, um, so that's the core. That's the core, the core principle. Yes, and so, what, um, what, do, what does yes and mean? Is that uh, what? What does that mean? Yes, I mean, and is the core principle. It's the foundational building block, regardless of what country you're in, continent you're on. It is 
Step number one when it comes to improvisation, yes, is unconditional acceptance. You give me this gift, this offer, this challenge, this opportunity, I accept it at face value. Not with any subtext attached to it, not with any ideas of what I think it might mean. It is what it is. And then is the bridge to your reaction. And is the bridge to what you do with it. And is the bridge to your intelligence. And is the bridge to your passion, your background, your education, the performing at the top of your intelligence. Yes is thoughtfulness. And is the bridge to how you are thoughtful. And as such, as the core principle, yes and can be used in a number of different ways, including as a direct roadmap to achieve mindfulness. Just explain that a little bit, to to achieve mindfulness. So how does that help you achieve mindfulness? Okay, so mindfulness is about being present. It's about awareness, whether that's emotional awareness, circumstantial awareness, environmental awareness. It's about the ability to slow the brain down to be present and in the moment. Once again, improvisation. Slow the brain down, be focused, be present in the moment. Yes, and is a roadmap to achieve mindfulness because if you're going to literally use yes, and, wherein you, for example, in a conversation are going to start a sentence with the word yes, and and then fill in the blank with whatever you're going to say, you have to listen to what somebody else is saying. You have to focus on what they're saying. So you have to actually be present and in the moment. And as I mentioned before, you can use postponed judgment and yes and on a personal level. So as now it relates to mindfulness again, you're slowing the brain down to be present, be in the moment, listen to what's coming out of your head in the spirit of creation, Get the words on paper, start punching on keys, whatever you need to do to write the proposal, to deal with a client that's a little bit challenging, to develop a a new strategy within a strategy, to take advantage of shifting parameters or competition. You have to have that level of awareness, which means you have to slow the brain down. And if you're going to use yes and, you have to, yes and inherently slows the brain down. So it's, so it's a it's a mental process, but it could also be a verbal one too. Absolutely, it starts with the the verbal process as it relates to communication and influence. And once you really embody that, you say that same language over and over again, it actually influences how you behave, which then turns into the yes and philosophy, wherein instead of looking for reasons you can't succeed, which is what the extreme majority of humans do, we look at the barriers, we look at the budget, we we literally define the reasons we cannot do something. We reframe the brain in yes and to look at possibility and potential. How can I make this work? Why is it important to make this work? Is this even possible to make it work before we drop the guillotine and say, this isn't going to work for XYZ reasons, reasons, budget, time, etc.? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that very, you know, very relevant in a negotiation. You know, that moment, that moment so you have these critical moments, can't you, which can determine the the outcome of a deal for you and the, the financials of it and if you <clears throat> if you don't you know, take that moment to think really think it through and and are prepared for it and you can you can find yourself um maybe uh, agreeing to something that you shouldn't have agreed to in the first place well absolutely and that has a, a you know that type of negotiation is high stakes you could reduce it down though to a conversation with a colleague a collaboration 
that perhaps you get along with the colleague, perhaps the, the road's a little bit bumpy and you have to figure out a way to smooth it down. So not a classic negotiation, more of a conversational or collaborative uh, negotiation. And for that matter, this framing of mind goes toward athletics like we talked about before. I've also had the extreme fortune of speaking with a number of individuals in the special forces, specifically Navy SEALs, and they have that philosophy as well. They can't think about why doom and gloom is surrounding them. They think about how to succeed and survive under the most adverse conditions. So though it's not framed as a yes and philosophy, that's exactly what it is. It's about how to take advantage of the environment that's right in front of you and succeed. Yeah, because what you talk about, those moments where improv becomes important are often the critical ones, aren't they, which can you know, make, make or break a situation. In that instance, could uh, make, you know, decide whether you live or die um, by your, your actions and your behavior. Um, so what you're suggesting here is we need to kind of prepare for those moments so we're able to operate at the top of our intelligence when we hit them, which are inevitable in everybody's lives. That at some point in, in your life, you do have these um, um, points of uh, points of time where you have to be at your best. I, I, I would rule that I used to say for most people every day. And once again, these don't have to be as high stakes as a, a Navy SEAL mm-hmm. in the midst of a battle or a high-powered, high-stakes negotiation. It could be dealing with uh, a client, uh, turning a loss into a lead. It could be adaptive problem-solving or crisis management on a smaller term inside the organization. And what you're mentioning is putting the, the, the training in place, the architecture in place to succeed so that once the rubber hits the road and it's time to truly use the tenets of improvisation at the top of your intelligence, you're doing it out of design rather than out of accident. Mm. Mm. Excuse me. And most of this training is easy too. We're not talking about training like a Navy SEAL or an elite athlete. We're talking about really going back to basic communication and focus and concentration. I could do with you here when I'm trying to put my children to bed. <laughs> a bit of coaching there around that could be quite helpful, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm fighting that battle as well with my three-and-a-half-year-old. So that's a constant negotiation, and that's one of the, as it relates to mindfulness, places where I try to be present and calm and collected because I know if I get worked up, he's going to get worked up. And so it's that, that dance that, frankly, I love at this point, that it's, it's fun to kind of do. Uh, excellent. Well, I hope you're still saying that when you're seven and eleven, like mine. <laughs> <laughs> I might have a different song to sing at that I point. I still love it then as well. <laughs> They've now got too smart. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, brilliant. Well, we're going to go back to a commercial break right now, but after the break, we shall look at you know a few other areas as to where um, we can use improv, but also you know how do we get started with this? How do we uh, really start to from tomorrow uh, build our improbability so that we can. Uh, increase the amount of success in these moments uh, in our businesses and uh, our lives really so we'll be back again with you just in a couple of minutes from the boardroom to you voice america business network would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. 
Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, it's Chris Cooper. I'm with Bob Culhan. We're talking about uh, about business improv. And uh, Bob, one of the things I think we should probably you know, really focus uh, a little bit more of our time on is this kind of arc that you describe in your book um, between uh, improv being really helpful for personal development, interpersonal development, team development, through to culture, uh, and how this yes and principle can um, you know permeates all of those. Um, do you want to sort of talk a little bit more about that so people leave with real clarity about what we mean? Absolutely. So once again, framing it around postponement of judgment with the divergent thinking side of thinking, which is the brainstorming, the number of ideas, the let's make a mess area and convergent thinking, which is the let's judge the ideas, let's clean up the mess, let's come up with a viable solution, let's go back to yes and. So first on a personal level, you can use yes and for personal creativity, for example. Now, creativity for a lot of people means writing a song or writing a book like you have or uh, a movie or a play. That's not creativity across the board, though. Creativity could be, once again, adaptive problem solving, coming up with a new solution. It could be writing a proposal or crafting an email so that, once again, the loss turns into a lead. So we start with personal creativity and, yes, and in the ability to postpone judgment. Postpone judgment yourself. Go back to that creative writing phrase, which is don't edit while you write. Don't try to censor while you're trying to write. Do the hardest thing, which is unlock human potential, your own human potential in your brain. Just get the words out of your head and onto the paper or onto the screen so that you can move to the the next step, the convergent thinking side, and clean it up. That's where you fine-tune and support. So that postponement of judgment just to unlock your personal potential is imperative for just getting ideas out of your head. You can, on a personal level, also use yes and as a way to collaborate with people, to show that you are focused, to show that you are present, to show that you are in a moment, to show in the moment, to show that you're engaging somebody. And in doing so, what we find is that the relationship on an interpersonal level is strengthened then. So by taking care of yourself, you're actually taking care of the relationship. And it goes to that old adage, to engage is to be engaging. So when you're focusing on engaging the people around you, you become engaging to them. 
So that's just all personal development. Now, interpersonal development is what can you do for the one or two people around you? How can you help them help themselves unlock the blocks to creativity, remove those barriers to creativity so that they're not judging while they're trying to create, they're not censoring their shelf, they're not worried about repercussions in the creation process. What can you do for the one or two people around you in a collaborative way so that communication is strengthened, just like we mentioned? So once you've done it for yourself and you do it for the one or two people around you, then you move to team development, that larger group, whether it be three, four, five people or 10, 15, 20 people. How can you create this type of uh, communication in this community so that, the, once again, the barriers to collaboration, barriers to change, barriers to creativity, barriers to adaptability, barriers to improvisation are pushed to the side for a period of time in that divergent thinking area. And you, you communicate with each other openly, honestly, without fear of repercussions. And this, once again, is all based in yes and. So once you've done it for yourself and you've done it for the one or two people around you in interpersonal communication, you've done it for the team, now you move on to creating culture, which is creating that language, that set of rituals, that set of routines, the accountability practices that need to be put into place so that the people know the law of the land and can communicate openly, honestly with each other without fear of repercussions. And those are where the great ideas lie in wait. That's also where intrinsic motivation lies in wait. It's people want to be part of communities and teams and cultures in which they feel valued, they feel appreciated. And the use of yes and as it relates to postponement and judgment shows people that you are willing to listen to them. That basic human desire to be understood or at least believe that people understand us then becomes actual to people. And that creates a bond, that trust, that loyalty that keeps employees working there. So that intrinsic motivation then links directly to employee retention because you've created the culture in which ideas flourish and communication is imperative all through the use of yes and. Yeah. So this, so I, well, you know, what I'm thinking about here is you know, traditional management styles where it would be you know, a structure with a, a leader who's maybe telling his team rather than listening to his team, understanding the situation and responding. And um, you know, a leader who thinks he's uh, the fountain of all knowledge, but actually the capability and the creativity and the potential sits, you know, much broadly within his team than it just within one person. Um, so, uh, we, we, you know, we're utilizing this by um, not suspending that judgment, but also what we are doing is, uh, is being open to realizing we need divergent thinking before we start to close things down. Is that what you're trying? What you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the judgment has to be put back into place. So let's be very clear: the, the suspending judgment or postponing a judgment does not mean abandoning judgment. It means pushing the judgment off just for a little bit, deferring judgment to a later period of time, so that the ideas come out, so that the talent that's there feels valuable, and in doing so, you find great nuggets of gold will continue to rise to the surface. And all it's your job as a leader to pluck them out. That doesn't mean in yes and you execute every idea that's brought to you. Not at all. You can say no, ultimately. You have to say no, ultimately. We're just talking about thoughtfulness. Right place, right time, right purpose. Because that old adage, we don't quit jobs, we don't quit companies, we quit people, 
is becoming more and more real, especially with the younger generations. At least here you know, in the States, the millennial challenge is very real because millennials want that value, even for some above a paycheck. They'll take a, a slightly lower paycheck if they feel valued inside that organization. So the question isn't, is this a good idea? The question is, do you know how to actually do it? Yeah. You know, I had a young young person saying, um, ask me, in which organizations out there will, um, if, if I was to approach, would make me a better person? I thought that was quite quite different when I was looking for a job many years ago and I was looking at, you know, which one had the best company car. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's all changed. I mean, you mentioned it. The leaders from the days of yore still do exist where they'll sit on high and, and show how intelligent they are by bork, barking orders at everyone. The overall corporate culture, though, has changed significantly. And the most enlightened leaders use a number of different ways to communicate. And that means sometimes you bark orders on high and sometimes you listen to people. You know, And the, the, the way that I'll define this quickly is uh, the the corporate culture changing, I'll define that by just pointing a light toward dress code. So go back 25 years ago, what did those corporate offices look like? Most people were wearing suits and ties to work. Formally, they had casual Friday sometimes. Then people started losing with the dot-coms, you started losing the tie and it's a nice jacket and dress pants and dress shoes. Then the dress pants left. So it's a nice jacket and dress shirt and jeans and dress shoes. Then the jacket left. So it's a nice dress shirt and jeans and dress shoes. And now you have billionaires showing up to work in hoodies and flip-flops and you have ping pong tables and uh, corporate babysitting and in-house restaurants Everything has changed. So to pretend like there's one style of leadership that fits the current environment is, I think, dangerously inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and do you think it's about, with regards to the, um, you know, the culture of the organization, should you be developing a culture in your organization which you know, matches the desires of the people that you want to attract to join you? Is that a better way of doing it than maybe it's it, traditionally coming from the uh, beliefs of the leadership team and the owners? I think you'll put yourself in a position to succeed by listening to the people who you hire and attracting people of more like minds. That's for sure. So yeah, I think being adaptable and listening and making the changes when appropriate are hugely beneficial toward the longevity of an organization. Now, for that matter, not everybody can gut a workspace and create an area that has ping pong tables and soda fountains. So what we're talking about with this is actually uh, very cost sensitive in that we're talking about most specifically by using yes and a framing of language that creates relationships that are based in respectful communication, even when you, you have to say no or disagree. Yeah. Yes. And that doesn't cost much. That's that's just some personal time and thoughtfulness. Yes. Yeah. And how how can, how can you in in those sort of scenarios maybe do, do you develop parameters to say actually it, it it's kind of okay if there's a, a a problem here for us to disagree as long as we're we're disagreeing and falling out around the around the problem but actually together as individuals we um 
you know, we, we, we always have mutual respect towards each other. Um, or is that just a, you know, a, a cultural approach that uh, you know, somebody might adopt to this situation? I th- if you create a culture of acceptance accurately, you will have disagreements sometimes because what we're talking about is everybody having the opportunity to, to voice their perspective. And there's a huge difference between individual perspective and individual agenda. You know, we not only want the individual perspective to be articulated, we need it. If you don't say what's on your mind, Chris, how can I adapt to you? How can I simply react to you? How can I be inspired by you? How can that great idea that pops in out of nowhere hit me in in that, that moment of creation, that epiphany, if you don't say what's on your mind, if you're limiting yourself because you're worried about what's being said, we need that individual perspective to be articulated and we need to celebrate diversity of opinion. However, we also need to have the same agenda. We need to go to the same direction. We need to hit the same target. So when the culture of acceptance is created properly, you will have opinions that don't always align. However, the agenda should always be in sync. Mm-hmm. So we've got just about three minutes to close now. What do people do if they really, to really explore this, you know, say tomorrow? What would you be your recommendation? I, I'll show my book. Buy my book. <laughs> That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. I would say start small. Okay, so the what's the what's the best way to eat an elephant? Let's go to that old joke. What's the best way to eat an elephant? Um, one bite at a time. One bite at a time, or, or probably don't eat it in the first place. Would be my well, opinion. possibly. <laughs> However, if we're talking about <laughs> developing a culture that that attracts great talent and retains great talent, we might want to take on that elephant. So start small. What can you do for yourself? Start with just yes and yourself. You mentioned your children. This is a great work-life bridge. Uh, Yes and your significant other, especially if you guys grate on each other a little bit, you know, get a little bit of argument, which is bound to happen, or with your kids, putting them to bed, try yes anding a little bit more than saying no, because they're reacting to the no, or they're reacting to the word but, for that matter. Huge difference between yes and yes but. So just... Practice tomorrow and really try. Try to be present. Try to be in the moment. Practice using yes and literally starting sentences with the word yes and and then following up with whatever you're going to say. Because here's one of the great things about practicing these techniques. No one will catch you. It's a fail safe. No one's going to catch you using yes and on a regular basis. And if they do, that means they took an improv class which also means no one's going to get mad. No one's going to be like, hey, you're really showing that you're listening to me and validating my ideas by using yes and, or I hate that. It doesn't work that way. People are like, oh, hey, you took some improv. Great. Thanks for listening to me. Bob, really great. I think I'm going to start using yes and tonight with my kids. I'm going to try it bedtime. I'm going to make that a key part of my vocabulary. Um, Let me know how it goes. I will. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I think um, it's a really thought-provoking conversation, you know, thinking about those moments that really matter and how do we get to that stage where we're, you know, at the top of our intelligence when we have to improvise in those moments. So something really well worth studying. I'd recommend to people to get hold of um, of, uh, Bob's book, um, Get Into Yes and The Art of Business Improv. Um, It's available for more good booksellers, I imagine, Bob? Yes, absolutely. 
Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all the indie-bound bookstores. I got the audio as well. <laughs> Lovely. So, And also, just to find out more about Bob, um, go to businessimprov.com. You can also go to bobcullhan.com. Um, on next week's show, we've got world-class speaker, entrepreneur, Derry Llewellyn Davis, um, a fantastic um, guy. This guy is doing amazing things all around the planet. Um, and he's actually interviewing me about the magic of engagement, which will follow on really nicely from this show. We did this actually as a pre-record on, on Monday, and we're airing it next Friday. And I'm very proud of that interview. I think it really, you know, between us, I think we really can capture engagement and it builds on um, beautifully i think from the conversation today with bob which i've thoroughly enjoyed uh, once again a huge thank you to you bob for joining us today thank you chris i had a great time thanks for having me you're very welcome and i wish everybody else a wonderful week we thank you for listening to the business elevation show please join your host chris cooper again next friday at 8 a.m u.s pacific time on the voice america business channel Be more, achieve more.